This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back and happy new year. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the people who have it. Last year, beyond three Democrats who might challenge Trump in November, we told you about the massive power of a conservative Supreme Court justice, the influence of a radical mercenary and his cabinet-level sister, and a decades-long effort to control politics through the news. But we opened on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, someone who, through a mix of cunningly dexterous political skill and a deep understanding of the rules of government— and a will to play outside of them, has managed to engineer Republican dominance across all three branches of American government. So who do the Democrats have that can also make things happen? Who knows how to play the game? You said, well, you've, you've lost now three times. Why don't you step aside? You've heard that question when we lost two times or one time. And I said, what was the day that any of you said to Mitch McConnell when they lost the Senate three times in a row, lost uh, – uh, making progress and taking back the Senate three times in a row. Aren't you getting a little old, Mitch? Shouldn't you step aside? Have you ever asked him that question? Have you ever asked, has any of you ever asked him that question? So I don't understand why that question should even come up. I'm here as long as my members want me to be here, as long as there, there's a, a reason to be here. That is Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, the first and second woman ever to be Speaker. And that's only her career in the 2000s. She's had a huge influence in national politics for more than 40 years. But it's 2020, a huge election year, and the year the United States Senate will probably hold a presidential impeachment trial for the third time in American history. And that's happening because of Nancy Pelosi. Our democracy is what is at stake. The president leaves us no choice but to act because he is trying to corrupt once again the election for his own benefit. The president has engaged in abuse of power, undermining our national security and jeopardizing the integrity of our elections. His actions are in defiance of the vision of our founders and the oath of office that he takes to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. Sadly, but with confidence and humility, with allegiance to our founders and a heart full of love for America, today I am asking our chairman to proceed with articles of impeachment. So what do we know about this woman who so far has been one of few Democrats that has stood up to President Trump and won, who leads Congress and is third in line to the presidency? How did she get all this power? How does she use it? And how has she impacted American democracy? Who is Nancy Pelosi? Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, born Nancy Patricia D'Alessandro, was pretty much on the path to politics from the moment she was born. 
Here's John Lawrence. He was Pelosi's chief of staff for eight years during her first speakership, capping off almost 40 years of working on the Hill. You need to remember that Nancy Pelosi, although she is a congresswoman from San Francisco, is really from Baltimore, Maryland, where her father was the mayor and was congressman. Her brother was later the mayor as well. But she grew up the youngest of six children with five older brothers, with a father who was very much part of the old Democratic Baltimore machine. Lawrence said she had five older brothers, some sources say six, but at that point, who's counting? Pelosi once told the San Francisco Gate, quote, In our family, it was about whose side are you on? The whole idea of working for families and the opportunity they had, we didn't know any other life. We were proud of the Democratic Party and the fact that it was for the people. That's my DNA. And that surrounded by brothers thing is important, too. Here's Paul Kane, who currently writes about Congress for The Washington Post. She learned how to operate in a man's world very quickly. She figured out how to maneuver around powerful men and outthink and outsmart powerful men really in her family from her childhood on up. And that has always been her grounding. You know, a lot of people, they like to paint her as the San Francisco liberal and all of San Francisco's liberal values. In a lot of ways, she's very much more the son of a Baltimore mayor who knows how to build coalitions, who knows how to think and act like a big city mayor and how to get the city council or now Congress, to bend to her will. I don't think there's any question it gave her uh, sharp elbows and a thick skin, which you need in politics, and you certainly need in a place like Baltimore. Frankly, you need it in a place like San Francisco, where there's a different political faction each block, and uh, they don't like each other very often. So knowing how to navigate those kinds of factions within your own party, let alone how to negotiate with people in the other party, is really key to being a successful politician and particularly to being a successful leader in Congress. I want you to pay attention to that distinction, being a successful politician and being a successful leader. There's a difference. Pelosi will have to play both roles throughout her career. But at the beginning, she's just a person in politics rather than a politician. She graduates college and meets and marries Paul Pelosi. Like the D'Alessandros, the Pelosi's were influential in politics in their native city, San Francisco. So in 1969, Nancy goes west with Paul and their five children. Ronald Reagan is governor. She gets her start in politics through the one thing that really runs everything. Money. Pelosi develops a natural reputation as an important fundraiser for the Democratic Party. Early on, she meets and gets close to Phil Burton, a powerful congressman who represents San Francisco in the House. This friendship helps Pelosi amass influence within the state Democratic Party, and she's elected party chair for Northern California in 1977 and chair of the California Democratic Party in 1981. In 1984, the Democratic National Convention is held in San Francisco, and Pelosi is picked to help organize the event. She's the chairwoman of the Convention 84 host committee, meant to promote San Francisco to visiting politicians and media. Pelosi oversaw 10,000 volunteers and was a volunteer herself. She told the New York Times, quote, Basically, I'm an organizer. I had five children in six years, so this is not so difficult. She also told the Times she had no interest in running for elected office. 
quote, I'm more into fundraising. But I like the vitality, the disagreements, the advocacy of politics. In 1983, Phil Burton passes away unexpectedly, and his wife Sala inherits the seat. A few years later, 1987, Sala Burton is very ill on her deathbed. No one wants to openly admit it, but her seat would be up for special elections soon. And Burton's word as to who she wanted to inherit the seat meant a lot. Sala picked Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi's last kid had just gone off to college, and she felt ready to run. Sala passes away, and in a special election primary, Pelosi faces several challengers, including city supervisor Harry Britt, a Democratic socialist, and in a word-for-word quote from the New York Times, a leader in homosexual politics. Harry Britt was an experienced elected official. He had succeeded Harvey Milk, who you may have heard of. He was the first openly gay elected official in California and was assassinated. There's a movie about it. Sean Penn plays Milk. And Pelosi hadn't held elected office, but had established herself as a national democratic mover and shaker behind the scenes. Pelosi won by four points. A big component of her win? She outraised all of her opponents combined. Nancy Pelosi is in the House. At the time, she's considered one of the most liberal Democrats in office. That might surprise some of you listening in 2020, but John Lawrence, who worked on the Hill for nearly 40 years and would eventually become Pelosi's chief of staff, says Pelosi has always been an activist. I think that Mrs. Pelosi views her role as an activist and as an advocate for people who don't have political power. And that, I know, sounds a little strange coming from a very, very wealthy woman who lives in San Francisco. And when she went to Congress, her first floor speech, the moment after she was sworn in, she was supposed to say, thank you, uh, it's so wonderful to be here. Instead, she stood up and she said, I'm here to fight for AIDS and HIV rights, medical care and anti-discrimination against people with HIV, which really floored most of the members uh, that somebody would not only give a substantive speech, but also would take on such a controversial issue, literally within 30 seconds, having been sworn in as a member of Congress. Pelosi also worked her way into historically male-dominated areas of a then-male-dominated Congress, the Intelligence Committee, for example, and became someone who would take brave public-facing positions, organize, and help bind the party together. One of the most difficult things for a politician to do is to make the transition from being in a campaign where it's all about you and about your positions and your constituents and your relationship to the press and to political activists in your district to becoming part of a member of Congress where you're now part of a collective group of people. And to some extent, you have to sublimate your own interests in order to accommodate the interests of others. And that's very tough for some people to do. Some people are better at it than others. A leader has to go one step further and synthesize all those different factions and all those different personalities, most of which are type A personalities, and get them aligned to uh, the point where you have a common purpose. Nancy Pelosi always would say, if we don't have 218 votes, and that is the majority of the House of Representatives, we're just having a conversation. Nancy Pelosi is a very transactional, very operational person. Her goal is to pass legislation. And so she had that skill set that was absolutely essential for a leader of listening, 
of uh, synthesizing and of persuading people to go along with what the consensus best judgment was for any particular legislative strategy. Let's talk about that skill set, this ability to work within Congress to get legislation not just introduced, but passed. Here's Paul Kane of The Washington Post. Message money and momentum. Pelosi believes that you have to have the right message, the right policy. Once you have that worked in, though, it can't go anywhere unless you have money in order to sort of push the message, to broadcast it through social media these days, to disseminate that message. And you need momentum. You need people on the ground who believe in your message, who hear your message through the money and will go out there and knock doors and make phone calls, stuff envelopes, send tweets, send text messages. You need those three message money and momentum to be able to win in this day and age. And that has always been her hallmark. If you can get those three, tie them together, you're going to win. And of course, there's money. That's a sad reality of politics. When I started working in congressional campaigns, there were literally people who ran for office in the 1970s who were spending twenty-five dollars and $30,000 to win a seat in the House of Representatives. Today, it's virtually impossible to run a serious campaign for Congress for less than $2 million. Uh, in the Senate, we're talking tens of millions of dollars. And of course, the presidency's moved to hundreds of millions of dollars. But the bottom line is that you just need to have money to compete. Uh, somebody once called money the mother's milk of politics. Uh, it's just what you have to have to get going and to be serious. And until we come up with a system that is somehow is able to diminish the significance of money, if you don't have it, you're going to have a very tough time winning. Now, it doesn't mean that if you have more money, you're always going to win. Mrs. Pelosi has always been very emphatic when she talks to people who aspire to run for Congress. She says, tell me what kind of a grassroots organization you have. What kind of power on the ground are you building? She would go and look at the Cesar Chavez's organization in California. She'd look at the civil rights movement. She'd say, where you win political battles is when you can put people into the streets, when you can put people into voting booths. And that is something above and beyond money. And if people can't show that they have that kind of grassroots popular support, she's very reluctant to give them the money or to direct money to them. And then momentum. Pelosi runs for House Minority Whip, the number two role of the minority party, a role never held by a woman before. She's up against Steny Hoyer, a more conservative Democrat. She wins. She becomes the first woman elected House Minority Whip. And then the first woman elected Speaker of the House. And we obviously can't ignore how she not only broke into a boys club, she came to run it. Here's Stephanie L. Young, who worked on the Hill and with the Democratic Party for years, including a role as press secretary for Steny Hoyer. I think it's been extremely important, especially for just the progression of women in this country and us being seen in a totally different light because you have a woman who's running Congress. Right. And if there are mistakes made and things happen, who could potentially be the president of the United States? Right. So I think that that's given women not only open the doors for them in ways I don't think people even realize yet. And I think that it's going to take a couple of years even from now to see her entire impact on the Congress, the way the Congress looks, but also just on everyday life and the way that women are viewed in the workplace. 
Here's Pelosi herself in 1988, still a new representative. When I was running for office, the comment even in progressive San Francisco was, well, who's going to be taking care of your children? And here in 1990. To the men in our audience, I would say, I can't believe that you think that your daughter should have any less opportunity than your sons. When Nancy Pelosi was beginning her climb up in the 1990s on the leadership ladder, it used to be a caucus then where it was about 75 percent male and predominantly white male. So she used to say that it was harder to become a female congressional leader than it was to become a female president. And she had to, in her race to get her first leadership position in 2002, she had to overcome incredible hurdles in that regard. This is long before the squad. There were only a handful of women in Congress at all. How did Pelosi navigate that world and rise through the party so quickly? Back to John Lawrence. Nancy Pelosi never chaired a committee or a subcommittee. She was the ranking member, the highest Democrat in the minority on the Intelligence Committee for uh, 10 years. That would end up becoming very significant for her as she dealt with issues like Iraq and Afghanistan later in her career. But it really meant that she did not occupy any of the roles within the leadership that typically members who aspire to leadership positions, let alone the speakership, would occupy. What motivated her was the performance or the lack of performance, more accurately, of the Democratic leadership through the 90s and really the very early years of the 2000s, when the margin between Democrats and the Republicans, the Republicans being in the majority, was very, very small. And it really required that Democrats win only a few seats to be able to turn the House from Republican to Democrat. And they just seemed incapable of doing that. And finally, after three or four of these successive failures, Mrs. Pelosi said to some people, look, I can do this better than these guys, because she was a very masterful campaign strategist and fundraiser. And when the House whip announced that he was going to retire in 2001, she threw her hat into the ring to run for whip. And uh, she was going to be running against Steny Hoyer, a fellow native of Maryland. Actually, they had interned together in Senator Brewster's office when they were both in college. And he had gone through this leadership chain. He had been the caucus chairman. And he very much expected that when the whip position became open, the number three leadership slot, that he was going to be the one that would rise to it. Instead, he faced Nancy Pelosi, who had never asked anybody for a vote for any position in the Democratic caucus, uh, and uh, she won. And within only a few years of that, she moved from whip to, uh, in 2003, she became the Democratic leader, and in 2007, she became a Democratic speaker. The Speaker of the House, of course, has to do a lot of coordinating and negotiating with the president and his cabinet. When she first became speaker, George W. Bush is president, and they just had a different relationship than Trump and Pelosi. There was sort of a dignified respect for each other. They each come from family dynasties. They had an understanding. But boy, they were different. One from Texas, one from California. They had very different views of the world. But then in the late summer of 2008, the economy starts to implode. Wall Street is going under. The mortgage industry is collapsing. And one by one, the big 
titan firms of Wall Street are either going under or like AIG requiring hundreds of billions of instant bailout funds from the Fed. And they basically get to a point where they tell Congress, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, Ben Bernanke, the Fed chairman, go to Congress, sit in Pelosi's office overlooking the Capitol, and they say they need at least $700 billion, and they need it within days, not weeks. So the negotiations unfold day after day, and it is high drama. The stock market is dropping every day, and there's a long weekend. There's a point where John McCain actually suspends his campaign, flies his presidential campaign against Barack Obama, flies back to Washington, and they have this epic meeting in the Bush White House with the president, both nominees, Barack Obama, John McCain. They have the House Speaker in Pelosi, the Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid, all the other bipartisan congressional leadership, the Treasury Secretary, all the most influential players, and McCain just blows up the entire meeting and storms out. McCain was never great on economics to begin with. He had actually a few days earlier said the fundamentals of the economy were strong, probably the uh, epitaph for his campaign in a lot of ways. And McCain storms out. John Boehner is sitting there saying nothing from the House Republican uh, uh, side of things. Mitch McConnell never says anything, so he's not saying anything. The whole meeting has unraveled. Democrats walk off and go into a separate room to sort of discuss what next to do. And Hank Paulson comes barreling into the room and is begging Pelosi, please do not give up. He bends down on one knee and grabs her by the hand and says, please don't give up. And she looks at him and says, Hank, are you proposing to me? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know you were Catholic. Of course, no matter how badass that moment may have been, we all know what happened next. The economy continued to stumble towards recession, drunk on subprime loans. These few months, these behind-closed-door meetings in Washington and Republican obstruction mounted by a young conservative movement, the Tea Party, created the economic conditions that in part led to the unprecedented chaos we see in Washington today. One thing that they look back on with some regret is the initial economic stimulus bill. They came into power, the Obama administration, January 20th, 2009, amid the Great Recession, and the fear was that it was going to become a Great Depression. And so they, working with House committee chairman, Senate committee chairman, they came up with a bill that was geared toward trying to rescue the economy. Basically ended up around $800 billion was the total cost. One-third of it was actually four tax cuts, middle-class tax cuts, uh, temporary payroll tax cuts. That's sort of the politics of it. That got really lost on a lot of people. And there's a lot of thought looking back that it wasn't big enough, that it wasn't bold enough, that it helped stabilize the economy, but yet it didn't do enough to rescue that middle class that had just seen their home values plummet. Um, or actually go completely under. And so there were a lot of people that were sort of left behind by that Great Recession that they just didn't get quite right. And I think that's one thing that they definitely look back on. And if they had to try and do it over, they would have tried to figure out a way to be bigger, bolder, something stronger. 
While the right works to brand Pelosi as a socialist and a radical, Kane alludes to the major criticism people on the left have of Pelosi today. This difference between measured incremental policymaking and big radical revolutionary change. Let's talk about radical change or lack thereof. How deeply is Pelosi a part of the oh-so-terrifying establishment? In 2001, she had 100% approval of her voting record from unions, Planned Parenthood, and major progressive groups. She fought for LGBT rights and care for AIDS, pushing for increased funding and support of needle exchanges and medical marijuana. She not only voted against the war in Iraq, she was one of the main voices resisting the now-endless war built on a lie. She fought W's tax cuts and the potentially disastrous privatization of Social Security. Then again, the Washington Post reported that in 2002, Pelosi and a handful of other reps were briefed in detail on the CIA's plans to um, enhance their interrogation. Torture. The reps were explicitly told about waterboarding and other techniques the CIA planned to use. Pelosi, who had an oversight role, raised no objections. Furthermore, she lobbied her party to vote against a bill that would have taken surveillance power away from the NSA. And she also voted for the notorious 1994 crime bill, Biden's bill, which I told you about a few episodes ago. On the other hand, she sponsored a single-payer health care bill during the Clinton administration. That's way before it was cool. One of Pelosi's biggest accomplishments was the Affordable Care Act. John Lawrence, who was her chief of staff at the time, told me this. I remember we were in the Oval Office one day. Again, this is about the Affordable Care Act. We were in the Oval Office, and it was a very small group of us, just a, f a handful of people with the president and the vice president, and we were talking about this problem that we were facing and not having the votes to pass the Affordable Care Act the way we wanted to. And there was discussion about the strategy going forward. Mrs. Pelosi had heard rumors which were circulating in Washington, that people wanted to scale back the design of the bill to only cover children, not to cover pre-existing conditions, not to cover preventative care, for example, which were very, very important to her. And I remember her turning to the president and saying, I know that there are people who are telling you that we should go for just a very minor bill. And I'm just telling you, we're not going to do that in the House of Representatives. We won't accept that. And I remember the president looking at her and saying, OK. And I think that was sort of the key moment where the decision was made that we weren't going to go for, I think, what Mrs. Pelosi called the eensy-weensy approach. We were going for the big bill. And uh, it just, it really made the point to me, not only of her commitment to the issue and to the ability to find the votes, but that she was not going to step back, whether it was the president or the president's staff or the Senate, anybody else. Once she'd made up her mind what the policy was going to be, she was sticking with that and she would find a way to get it done. That was the hardest piece of legislation I've seen cross any desk. And I think that probably in this generation, it probably is number one. My former boss, Emmanuel Cleaver, was walking into the Capitol the day of the vote and people were screaming and shouting. It looked like 1950s or 60s when they were integrating high schools yeah. and someone like spit on him. And I mean, you can see him wiping his hand and looking at the person. So it got so crazy. And usually when things get that hot and heavy, members are like, let's not do this. So it took a strong person to say, we're going to get this done. 
Like, we are going to get this done. There were so many different moments of when it looked like it was on the ropes and that it was going to fall apart and go into what we now call sort of skinny healthcare. And she was the driving force in Congress and in a lot of ways gave the spine to Obama and the Obama West Wing to go for something bigger and bolder. There were people who were arguing down at the White House that she and President Obama had probably just bitten off more than they could chew, that it was very hard to see how we were going to get legislation through the House, even more difficult to see how we were going to get it through the Senate, where they needed a 60-vote margin to pass a bill that we just needed a simple majority in the House. And after months and months of this battling and lots of ultimatums and lots of threats and facing unanimous Republican opposition, there were a lot of people who were just saying, you know, Madam Speaker, I think we should just call it a day, pass a small bill and uh, move on to something else. And I remember her saying, there's not a chance of that. There's not a chance. We're all in on this and we're going to pass a bill. And they said, well, how are we going to do that? And she said, we're going to do it. Now, we ended up doing it by one vote. She was a North Star through the entire process, and she didn't waver, and she didn't back down, and she was strong, and she was pragmatic in the face of a lot of adversity. And when all is said and done, of course, we have the Affordable Care Act because of President Obama and his vision, but it would not have been put into law if it wasn't for Nancy Pelosi and her tenacity in the process. Let's not forget what we originally went into this talking about. Nancy Pelosi is really, really good at, and I swear this is the best way to describe this, doing Congress stuff. She has an incredible capacity for gathering and synthesizing information. So it's not uncommon when you're a Nancy Pelosi staff person that you will bring her information that she's already heard because she has these incredible political antennae. But what she is extraordinary about and what really no staff person can do is that she synthesizes this information. So it's not just that she knows where members stand on a particular issue or she knows the details of a particular policy. She knows the 20 different positions within the caucus. She knows the five different policy options. And she synthesizes that in a way that is marketable to members of the caucus. So you're in a situation where you know you are supplying her with vital information, but you don't necessarily know how that information will be used and how she will she will orchestrate it in order to work with her caucus to develop the legislation and pass it. It gets her a Good amount of respect. Everybody respects Nancy Pelosi. Mm -hmm. I look at her and I'm in awe of her, number one, because she had five children. Okay. That's no longer normal in the United States to have five kids. So a woman who has five kids who raised her children and then had a second career as a politician is outstanding and amazing. I mean, people always underestimate women, but I think that it's probably been easy to underestimate her in the past. And I feel like she's always been underestimated. And I feel like that's probably her greatest strength because you underestimate her and you don't realize that. She's over there building relationships, understanding policy like no other, and can get shit done. I think just the talk from the entire caucus that was going on from the moment we took back the House about her speakership, mm-hmm. that it was in real jeopardy. Yeah. So many people counted her out. Yeah. So many people said, she's too old, we need a new guard, like, people have spoken, all these Other members were stepping up saying that they were going to run, you know, causing different fractions. 
And I do remember people saying, I don't think she has the votes. And she did. Yeah. And that is political maneuvering in a way that I don't think people are fully aware of. Right. And that is another time and another moment when they have underestimated her and she still got it. Because at the end of the day, she was able to prove yet again that she's the best qualified. She's the one who can raise the most money. And she's the one that really can lead this caucus in a way that nobody else can. Now, say you're an eighth grader sitting in American history class in 2092. You take off your air filter mask and pull out your textbook, published in 2080, school funding is still awful, and open up the section about the Trump era. What does it say about Nancy Pelosi? I would have always assumed that her obituary was always going to be Nancy Pelosi, comma, the first female speaker of the House who made history, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I think what has happened in this last year is this moment, everything that she has done previously has built to this moment, has built to Donald Trump and her showdown with Donald Trump. And that is going to define her, her life, her comma, Nancy Pelosi, comma, who in a showdown with President Trump either won or lost. And winning or losing isn't necessarily whether he gets removed from office. It is, does she... And this investigation make clear to voters that Trump is a flawed president and must be removed from office by the ballot box, most likely? Or is it a risky gambit that backfires and voters look back less than a year from now and think, what was all that impeachment stuff about? It didn't do anything. It was just a Washington story and instead help reelect Donald J. Trump. Pelosi was famously tough on Bush but not impeachment tough. She always pushed back against attempts from the left wing of the party, like Dennis Kucinich, if you remember that name, to impeach W, saying it was completely off the table. And here's Pelosi in the 90s talking about investigating President Clinton's alleged sexual misconduct. The president has denied the charges. I myself accept him at his word and uh, give him the presumptuous, uh, presumption of innocence that every American deserves. Uh, I think that the American people have a sense of fairness and of respect for privacy uh, that, uh, the, that and that is one of the reasons why uh, they are by and large supportive of the president at this point. Speaking of presidents repeatedly accused of sexual misconduct, Pelosi originally was against any kind of Trump impeachment. But the Ukraine call, where President Trump allegedly threatened to cut military aid to Ukraine unless they helped him create bad PR for his political enemy, was the final straw. Here's Paul Kane. In March, she just sort of blurted out, hey, I'm going to make some news here. I really don't like impeachment. He's just not worth it. And that was her attitude for so long, that impeachment was something that was going to be divisive and bitter, and also that the Mueller report had been very complicated and it was very hard for the public to understand what was going on. It took more than two years to deliver, and she was really opposed to it all the way through the summer, at the very end of the summer legislative session in a uh, private closed-door huddle of Democrats. She gave everybody essentially a free pass to say if they wanted to back home for their own politics to say, yes, I'm for an impeachment inquiry. But she said that she would take any of the bullets holding back the forces. But then came Ukraine. Then comes the September 9th 
notification to the House Intelligence Committee that there is this whistleblower report about Ukraine. And over the next two weeks, what unfolds is the House Intelligence Committee getting their hands on the report as the Trump White House releases the transcript of that July 25th call with Ukraine President Zelensky. And all of a sudden, you had a live act, something that was ongoing as they talked and considered it. And Pelosi pivoted on a dime. I think that she felt that while she disagreed with virtually everything the president has done since he became president, whether that's on immigration or trying to repeal the health care law or withdrawing from the climate agreement, withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal. She didn't view most of those as impeachable offenses. Those were political judgments. And as she very often says, uh, elections have consequences. He won the election. He gets to make certain decisions. I think that changed once the revelations about the uh, intimidation, the effort to intimidate President Zelensky of Ukraine became evident. And then particularly when the president unleashed an unremitting effort to obstruct Congress's constitutional role in investigating what had happened. I think that pushed her over the top because what it really meant was that the president was repudiating the constitutional role of the Congress as a co-equal branch of government, and that she, as the head of the legislative branch of government, could not abide. Nancy Pelosi is a historic, towering figure of this century and Congress in this century, depending on how this showdown with Trump plays out over the next year. She may go down as the most consequential congressional figure of the 21st century. This is Speaker Pelosi's moment. Who is Nancy Pelosi? I want to jump to something completely different and look at Pelosi as a person over a public figure. When longtime fellow representative and fellow Marylander Elijah Cummings passed away in 2019, Pelosi spoke at his funeral. Here's Stephanie L. Young. When Elijah Cummings died, and I know that they were very close and they had a very close relationship, but, you know, he was the first African-American member to lie in state in the House of Representatives. And it was through her power that that was able to happen. And when she went up there to speak at his funeral, she got a standing ovation. And I'm talking about you had Bill Clinton there, Secretary Clinton there. You had President Obama there as well. They all got rousing applauses. And I know that I feel like they stood for President Obama. I can't really remember. But I do remember everybody stood in that church for Nancy Pelosi. So that to me, I was like, wow. Um, And while all this was happening, her brother died. And so she buried her brother, and then she buried her friend three days later, but she still had a smile on her face. And that's Nancy Pelosi to me. Not all of the effects Pelosi has had are sweeping legislation or fundraising or impeachment. Her leadership allowed women to feel like being a a woman in real life was normal, meaning we have members who will bring their babies to vote. So you have like little kids running around the floor. You have children coming to work with their parents or their grandparents. You have like work-life balance respected in a totally different way. Right. And I know that her leadership allowed that to happen. They're very keen and focused on women in leadership, but also giving women what they need to work, which is work-life balance and respect within that. So 
the house to me became more of a family-friendly place. Right. And I think that that's important to note as well. And even though I'm not married, I don't have children yet, but as a young woman, it made me feel like, oh, this is more fair, more equal. This also respects women in a way that they're able to come to work and do what they have to do with integrity, but also respect their personal life and really make this a family thing. Well, I think there are two things. I think as far as the role of government and policy, I think what she has shown is that government action is essential if you're going to address broad national issues, whether that's healthcare or whether that's environment or whether or not that's racism or whether or not that's sexism or whether or not that's LGBT rights or whether or not that's economic justice. These are not issues that you can just leave to the private sector. And to do that, you need to have government, but you need to have government that people have confidence in. And that's why she's put so much emphasis onto ethics in government and transparency in government to let people see how government is operating and to hold people accountable, including her own members. She's, she's, was a, she was a member of the Ethics Committee for many years, and she has taken action against her own members when they have behaved in an unethical way. So building up that public confidence in government so the government can address these big issues, I think, is really crucial. I think the other thing she's done that she would be very proud proud of, is to elevate the role of women in government. And, you know, when she arrived, there were fewer than 20 women in the House of Representatives. And now we have more than 100 women members of the Congress. And while it's still not representative of women as a whole in the country, because of her recruitment of women, because of where she has placed women on committees and in appointive positions, you have women playing a dramatically and historically different role in the business of government and the making of public policy. And I think that's really a testimonial to the leadership that Speaker Pelosi has given Congress and the government over the last 15 years. Her passion was always the Democratic Party, as opposed to issues one at a time, because she believed that the Democratic Party embraced those issues. That's a quote from Barbara Boxer, one of Pelosi's close friends and colleagues from the California delegation. And Boxer is right. Much of what the Speaker of the House does is in service of her party. And a lot of the time, it works. Nancy Pelosi, who broke the glass ceiling, is a masterful politician, a skillful fundraiser who converts that prowess into power, a strategist who knows how to get tough legislation passed, and a savvy player who can lead Democrats in Congress like no one else can. She knows how to play the game. Today, Pelosi is at the height of her power, a reluctant leader in the impeachment of Donald Trump. What may be the most fascinating chapter of her biography is still being written. Nancy Pelosi's story isn't over yet. On our next episode, we're moving to a world that both Democrats and Republicans alike are beholden to. It's Raytheon lobbyist turned Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, who runs the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. Its proposed 2020 budget... $738 billion. On the next episode of Who Is, Mark Esper and the Military Industrial Complex. A sincere thank you to our experts Paul Kane, Senior Congressional Correspondent at The Washington Post, John Lawrence, author of The Class of 74 Congress After Watergate and the Roots of Partisanship, and Stephanie L. Young, former White House Senior Public Engagement Officer in the Office of Public Engagement. And a special thanks to Danny Weiss and Other Points West. 
Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indradet. Production support from Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, Margot Wall, and Faluke Tuakli. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube.